Welcome back to another episode of It's a Crime, an exploration into deceit, betrayal, and the shocking truth that lies beneath. Welcome back to It's a Crime. I'm your host, Margaret McLean. This is episode two of the Anna Walsh missing persons case. Last time I left off with an intense ground search for Anna, who'd been missing for six days. Her former home was engulfed in flames. How bizarre is that? What is going on? And the mystery thickens because it turns out her husband Brian is not simply the good old guy who lives next door. He's a con man awaiting sentencing in federal court. There's a lot more to this story. So let's get right to it and examine that suspicious fire first. Anna went missing on Sunday, January 1st. She was reported missing on January 4th. This crazy fire breaks out on January 6th around 2.15 in the afternoon. My immediate thought was, wow, that's quite a connection. I also had a number of listeners reach out to me about the fire. The consensus was that it had to be related to Anna's disappearance. People even speculated that her husband Brian was storing stolen Andy Warhol paintings in the old attic in a secret compartment and therefore set the fire. With that said, I'd like to focus on how this particular fire would be investigated. I reached out to Massachusetts State Police Captain Paul Zipper. Now, Paul is one of the best fire investigators in the field. We used to work together on arson cases when I was an assistant DA in Lawrence, Massachusetts. Paul retired as commander of the Fire and Explosives Unit of the State Fire Marshal's Office. I asked Paul, does that weird connection change how the fire would be investigated? Here's what he had to say. We would treat this scene like we would every other scene. Knowing that this may be related to another case doesn't change the protocol of what we would do on this particular case. Investigations always start outside and they work in. We would look at the outside to see where the fire came from. Our data collection involves witness interviewing, collecting any video, audio kind of stuff that's out there. We would then work ourselves inside. If you want to look at what caused the fire, work from the least amount of damage. When you get to the area of most amount of damage, traditionally that's where your fire came from and you're looking for heat sources. What are the heat sources in this, say it's the attic? Because we have to eliminate accidental causes before we get to, for example, a set fire. My mind is totally spinning. Accidental fire or deliberately set? If Brian Walsh was being questioned by the police in his wife's disappearance, how could he have possibly set this fire? Uh, I suppose he could have hired someone, but the fire started in the middle of the afternoon. That's a pretty tough time to set a fire. The family living there was home, and it started in the attic. So hypothetically, you'd have to somehow sneak upstairs with matches and a can of gas, light it, and make it out. I'd say someone would likely see you. I gotta believe a fire investigator would be thinking along the same lines here. These are some of the questions they'd be asking. Who was the last one in that home? What time did they leave? 
Why did we have a fire today and not yesterday or not the day before? What is the different event that would have led to this fire? And certainly we'd be working with the insurance company to see if homeowners, maybe they, maybe did they increase their insurance policy? Did they just add a policy they didn't have of a million dollars a week ago and now they have a fire? It's amazing how many questions need to be asked, but it's still bugging me. My mind is stuck on Brian Walsh and Chief Quigley's statement from the fire scene keeps ringing in my ears over and over. Very strange coincidence. Given that, would they be putting any pressure on Brian Walsh? question would be, do you have any enemies, Brian? Is there someone who, who might have thought that you still live there that would be trying to get even with you? Hmm, that's an angle I hadn't thought of. Brian has a lot of enemies, and we're going to be talking about that pretty soon. They would also ask the homeowners, did Brian have access to the house? Did he have keys to the house? Did they change the locks? Did he ask you to hold something for him in the house? Did he leave something behind? At some point it would be, Brian, look, if you would help us out, we'd like to know what you were doing that day. And I tell him, you can either tell the truth or you completely lie. And both those things are helpful to determine, okay, is this person legit and they're not involved? Or do we have to look harder? I appreciate Paul sharing his expertise with us regarding the fire. He also wanted to point out one very important thing. I do not want to be identified as a palooka. That, by the way, is from the last episode when my friend Lori referred to Brian Walsh as a palooka. Palooka, palooka, palooka. Got it. <laughs> and what does it mean, Paul? You looked it up in the well, dictionary. Well, I looked it up. First of all, I really enjoyed your podcast, and I, I appreciate you. you inviting me on. And I, I said, I have to look up what a palooka is. A palooka came from a boxer who wasn't very good. But in the slang vernacular, it's sort of an oaf. So that's, that's my best working definition of palooka as we speak. And speaking of palookas, detectives are busy questioning Brian Walsh at his home. His wife is still missing, and now it's Saturday, January 7th. The search intensifies, and the residents in this small town of Cohasset are shaken. This is how my friend Lee Buddington described the chaos. I was shocked in total disbelief. Things like that don't happen here. This young mom of three gone missing, her husband involved, like super creepy. You could not get away from any of the activity between 3A and having all of the media. Helicopters were hovering. We heard of search dogs and draining of pools and pretty, pretty scary. It is scary. They have three canine teams searching the area. Now remember, Cohasset's on the ocean and has various inlets and ponds. If someone out there killed Anna, they'd have to dispose of the body. I'd actually like to touch on that. If a body is placed in a bag, weighted down with rocks, and then thrown into the water, how do the cadaver dogs find it? Well, I asked my canine specialist, Bobby Delito, as I was doing a ride along on patrol with him in Brockton. Where the cadaver dogs come in is you see those dogs that are like on the front of a boat with their head over the boat and they're, they're smelling. Well, those are the gases that are coming up from the water. Somebody was dumped overboard and they got bricks and they're at the bottom of the ocean or bottom of the lake rather. And as they're decaying, the gases are coming up. Those dogs are looking for that odor. Same thing where if a person was buried out in the woods and they're out there decaying, 
cadaver dog would come in handy for something like that because the, the gases that are coming from that decaying body, that's what the cadaver dogs are, tr are trained in that odor. The search for Anna in the woods and water continues. Now we're into Sunday, January 8th. The police have been aggressively questioning Brian. By the way, Brian's ankle bracelet did not use GPS tracking like some do. Instead, it used radio waves so when he left the home to drive the kids someplace or whatever, it didn't show specifically where he went. So detectives had to establish a timeline using other methods. And that takes a lot of legwork. Did he go through the stall booth? His phone's got him over here, why is he over there? You put the electronic data together with your witness statements and you try to see if you've got A, a truthful person, or B, a liar, and that's what you do. Okay, let's say they trip Brian up, catch him lying about his whereabouts after his wife went missing. Then what? I'd say it's time for the search warrants. Let's say they want to search the Walsh home, which is rented. Can the landlord give permission? Absolutely not. So I teach law at Boston College and we spend a lot of time on constitutional law and search and seizure. The Fourth Amendment protects you from unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. If they want to search the home, Brian could give the police permission or they can go right to the Quincy District Court where they'd present written sworn statements called affidavits basically saying, we've got probable cause to believe that a crime occurred. Look, his wife's missing, we caught him in a bunch of lies. Then it would be up to the judge or magistrate to issue the search warrant. If the police don't follow the proper steps, evidence will be thrown out. In this case, the court issued the search warrants, but the details are sealed, so we can't see what they say because it's part of the investigation. I parked across the street and watched detectives going in and out of the Walsh home. I also saw them removing big plastic tubs. I'm sure they'll be taking computers, laptops, iPhones, iPads, to examine Brian's online history. As they're combing through the house looking for evidence of a crime, let's dig deeper into Brian Walsh's criminal history. What kind of man is he? I went to federal court and pulled the art fraud case. I see the word betrayal peppered all over the place. Several quotes from federal prosecutors also jump out at me. They said these crimes were devious, complicated, and planned. They were committed over many years from 2011 through 2016. He enlisted multiple artists to prepare fake paintings with multiple lies. He manipulated and stole from people who trusted him. He crafted complicated stories and lies about the paintings to make the fraudulent sales believable. He targeted and ensnared several victims, which included a Warhol dealer, an art consultant, and his own dentist for nearly half a million dollars. How did he do it? Well, here's the story. Brian had a best friend from South Korea who prefers to remain anonymous, so I'm just gonna call him Liam. Their friendship goes all the way back to 1994 when they were freshmen at Carnegie Mellon. After college, Liam invited Brian to South Korea multiple times where he stayed with his family. These people welcomed him with open arms. And of course, Brian notices they have an extensive collection of valuable artwork. At some point, he decided to con them out of it. Hmm. So Brian attended Liam's wedding and I can picture this. He probably had a big smile on his face and said, hey, I can sell some of this artwork for you. You'll make a lot of money. 
Brian must have been very persuasive because they believed every word he said. And come on, what did Brian Walsh really know about selling artwork? So Liam handed over two very valuable Andy Warhol shadow paintings, which the family had purchased for $240,000. Plus, they gave him a $40,000 Warhol dollar sign painting, along with other pieces of valuable art. And just like that, Brian takes the art back to Boston and stops talking to his friend. Just to give you an idea of what goes on inside the criminal mind, this is right out of Brian's diary, which was recovered by the FBI. Quote, I have a plan for the art, to get off with some of the good pieces, need to sell the shadows. I will take all the money, then only a taste of everything else. I will make this deal work. They have stuff that is good and his family are all about themselves. Makes it easy for me to do them up. <laughs> In the same diary, Brian also writes about how he stole Liam's watch. Quote, stole his AP watch, put the watch on eBay, sold watch for 12K. And the scheme continues for Brian finds an artist in New York who makes near-perfect replicas of the Warhol Shadows paintings. He takes the fake ones and dupes a 63-year-old retiree from Paris who pays $145,000 for the forged paintings. After stealing the money, Brian's credit card receipts show he went on a big shopping spree, and boy does he love Prada. In the meantime, his friend from South Korea desperately wants his family's art back. You think Brian returned any of his phone calls? In the meantime, Brian gets greedier. He has a second artist make another set of fake Warhol shadows paintings. Then he goes and lists them on eBay for a hundred grand. Ron Rivlin wants to buy these famous Warhol paintings. He's the owner of a swanky art gallery on Sunset Boulevard in LA. He offers to pay $80,000 and strikes a deal with Brian. Rivlin's assistant travels to Boston with a certified check Brian gives her the paintings, the fakes, of course, and deposits the check that day and spends most of it to pay off credit card debt that he had racked up for luxury travel and expensive restaurants. He also made cash withdrawals. The next day, Mr. Rivlin realized he'd been conned. For those paintings were fake, there were no Warhol Foundation stamps. He was livid. Brian ignored his calls, so Rivlin finally got through to his wife, Anna, and threatened to call the police. Brian refunded 30 grand, but that's all he had left after spending the rest, so he cut off contact. Rivlin goes straight to the FBI, and thank God they got involved, because you wonder, how many people would Brian have conned over the years? Federal prosecutors also noted that the real Warhol paintings are likely still in Walsh's possession. They've never been recovered, and as a result of this fraud, those iconic paintings will likely never grace the wall of a gallery or museum again. If you think about it, Brian Walsh has ripped us all off. Ultimately, the government built a strong case, and boy were they geared up for trial. It certainly wasn't looking good for Brian, so he backed off and pleaded guilty. He was supposed to be sentenced in June of last year, but the judge received new information that he swindled his own father, so sentencing was pushed off. 
That's another story we're going to explore, but it'll have to wait till next episode. Let's get back to the case at hand. It's Sunday afternoon, still no sign of Anna. I do have news about that mysterious fire that broke out in the Walsh's old home. The state fire marshal's office completed their investigation and announced that the blaze was accidental. It was caused by damaged piping connected to a gas fireplace. They also added that home heating equipment is the second leading cause of residential fires and the main source of carbon monoxide poisoning. It also appears there were no Andy Warhol paintings found in the attic. On a completely different note, I have news for you. Brian Walsh was just arrested. It wasn't for murder, but at least he'll be off the streets. And the charges are misleading a police investigation. Yep, sounds like they caught him in a bunch of lies. I attended the arraignment Monday morning in a very packed Quincy District Court. Brian entered a not guilty plea, and Norfolk County Assistant DA Lynn Beeland explained how Brian lied to investigators. Here are some of the highlights of the arraignment. Her phone pinged on the first and the second, which is after the defendant had said she had left. Additionally, the defendant right now was on house arrest. Out of that probation and condition, he was to report his whereabouts if he was to leave the house. He indicated that on January 1st, he went to his mother's house in Swampskin. However, it took him a lot longer because he got lost. He also stated to the police that he went to Whole Foods and CVS. There was no surveillance or indication that he went to Whole Foods, no CVS. He indicated he purchased some items. There's no receipts for him having purchased that. These statements caused a lot of delay as part of the investigation as police now were focusing on the North Shore. He further indicated that on January 2nd, as he was supposed to report in, that the only time he left is that he went to take his son for some ice cream. Surveillance checked during the investigation indicated that defendant, in fact, on January 2nd, sometime after 4 o'clock, went to the Home Depot, which is in Portland. He's on surveillance at that time, purchasing about $450 worth of cleaning supplies. That would include mops, bucket, tops, TVEX, uh, drop cloths, various kinds of tape. Police obtained a search warrant and actually searched the house. Blood was found in the basement area, as well as a knife, which also contained some blood, and part of the knife was damaged. These various statements caused a delay in the investigation to the point that during the time frame when he didn't report his wife and gave various statements that allowed him time to either clean up evidence, dispose of evidence, and causing a delay. As of this time, Anna Walsh has not been found. So because of that, the Commonwealth is asking 500000 cash bail. Wow. My first thought goes out to Anna Walsh and their three children. Evidence of a crime is adding up. A bloody damaged knife and serious cleaning supplies. My mind immediately goes to a mop and buckets for cleaning up poor Anna's blood. Drop cloths and tarps to cover the floor so her blood doesn't get everywhere. Or to wrap up her beautiful corpse for disposal. So very sad. Also, you can see how detectives used the information from Brian's ankle bracelet even though it didn't have GPS. They knew exactly how long Brian was away from home. When he said he got lost going to his mother's house, he was likely doing something else like disposing of evidence in Anna's disappearance. Who gets lost going to their mom's house? 
police also knew when to pull surveillance footage at Home Depot, and sure enough, they spotted him. I watched Brian as he stood there listening to the prosecutor, probably thinking about all his stupid mistakes, like, how could I have forgotten about that knife? And gee, I must have missed some blood on the basement floor. You know, I wonder if he was even remorseful about his wife. I wonder what goes on inside that criminal mind. You know, speaking of that, there's been a lot of talk about Brian's infamous smile. So right before that bail hearing, police escorted Brian from the jail with handcuffs on in front of the press. He had this big, blokey smile on his face. And people had a lot of different opinions about it. What did it mean? And here's what they had to say about that smile. Well, that was a guilty smirk if I've ever seen one. Why the hell would he be smiling? I think he was goaded by the media. I think that this is a sinister smile. Incredibly creepy. I thought the smile was was total bullshit. I mean, you know, who's going to smile after walking uh, out of jail into a courthouse when, when your wife's missing. I think he's gotten to the point where he's accepted his fate. People know what he did. There's a lot of evidence. That that was the guy's uh, murder face. I thought it meant that you'll never find the body. I, I thought it was ridiculous. I, I think he was just trying to put on a smokescreen. I think he was thinking, hmm, now I am up Shit's Creek without a paddle. Yeah, I'd say so. Well, my friends, it looks like that's a wrap. Stay tuned for episode three. Will Brian Walsh be arrested for murder? Will they ever find Anna? What will investigators reveal next? Once again, I'm your host, Margaret McLean. Thank you for listening to It's a Crime.